On Guido Talks this week, the EU's vaccination plan unravels, Labour plans a by-election stitch-up, and the SNP tries to cover up bombshell sexual assault allegations. All that and more this week on Guido Talks. Stick about. Hello and welcome to Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by reporter Christian Cowgie and Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines. If you're watching this show on YouTube, remember you can click to the later bits of the discussion, click to any discussion you fancy by following the links and timestamps in the description. So let's kick off this week with a story that has been rumbling for a while now, but really came to a head with some bombshell news from Ursula von der Leyen. And that is that the EU could work to restrict any vaccine exports to countries that have been more successful in their vaccine rollouts than the EU. Who on earth could she be referring to there, I wonder? Potentially, just potentially, it's that vaccinated superpower on the doorstep, the UK. Now, Ursula von der Leyen spoke in a press conference on Wednesday, and she suggested that not only could the EU um, come in to factories, but also interrupt uh, contracts and deliveries and prevent any vaccines leaving the EU. We noted in our article about this that this is a very curious piece of politicking, not least because the EU hasn't even used half of its AstraZeneca supply. So really, you've got to ask yourself how much of this is actually about securing more vaccines for Europeans, and how much of this is trying to create a scapegoat for her vaccine disaster other than herself. I think uh, the European politicians are panicking. There were regional elections in Germany uh, this week and uh, the CDU, CSU, Merkel's party, got absolutely smashed. And if she's getting the blame, think what all the other politicians around Europe are thinking about the situation. And whether it's their own fault or whether it's their fault for trusting in the EU, the public in all these countries is definitely not happy. I made a joke on Twitter the other day, actually, that um, Ursula von der Leyen is going to be absolutely slaughtered in the next European Commission elections, uh, which, which, of course, never Very happened. dry, very dry. Very. <laughs> Macron has been particularly bonkers, uh, because not only is he uh, coming out in favour of, of a vaccine blockade, he's also been particularly vocal uh, in, obviously pausing the rollout of AstraZeneca because he's been falsely playing up to these ridiculous blood clot uh, anti-science rumours and complaining that France isn't getting enough of the blood clot causing vaccine. Um, he just seems in a complete spin, doesn't he? Um, it's, it's quite hilarious. And Would some of these countries suspending the AstraZeneca programme overnight and then restart it in the morning, I noticed. The, the thing about the... Uh, the idea that the Europeans would, would block AstraZeneca from delivering supplies or exporting supplies is part of the uh, Pfizer uh, compound is made in the UK. It was, it's, it's just madness. We're all interdependent. If they blocked it and there was uh, retaliatory tariffs or uh, restrictions, it would be counterproductive. I mean, just, I, think, I think they're not intending really to do it. It's all just bluster. And they need an external threat to justify their failure. 
Well, it was interesting. I, I, I found on Thursday, it. Matt Hancock used some very forthright language in the House of Commons, saying there will be very serious consequences if the EU go ahead with breaching contract obligations. We can have a little look at that now. I, I agree with every word that my right honourable friend has said. Uh, I think that it is vital that we all work together. These supply chains for the manufacture of these vaccines uh, cross borders. They are often global supply chains, um, and it is vital that we work together to deliver them. And there, are, uh, there is a need uh, for that cooperation, and there is, of course, a need for all countries to respect contract law. That is the basis of international trade, and I'm sure that the European Union will live up to the commitments and statements that it has made, including President van der Leyen herself, who has said that there should not be restrictions on companies when they are fulfilling contractual responsibilities. Of course there should not, um, and we fully expect those contracts to be uh, delivered on because there are very significant consequences to breaking contract law. There's one further point, uh, Madam Deputy Speaker, which is that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine was developed because of UK taxpayers putting the funding in to the science, to the development, to the clinical trials, and because of AstraZeneca with an incredibly bold and generous decision, which we fully support, but was their decision to offer this vaccine around the world at cost. It's not just Europe experiencing difficulty with the vaccine. Britain uh, ourselves have encountered the biggest seeming roadblock thus far in the rollout, and that is after a letter was leaked from the JCVI to the NHS yesterday saying that there is going to be significant dip over the next month on the vaccine rollout. And it took a while to entirely establish why and it now looks like the government is having to double check a batch of about a million and they're having uh, import difficulties with a batch of five million from India uh, so we all have to see how this plays out. The, fu the fundamental point that ministers were very keen to get across uh, after this news broke is that this isn't going to interrupt the timetable. Uh, listeners might remember us discussing a couple of weeks ago how the timetable looked very pessimistic because we were vaccinating a lot faster than, uh, than, than the timetable set out and sort of why are these dates so late? Well, now perhaps some of that slack in the system was necessary because ultimately the people are still going to get their vaccinations at the original time scale. It's just we're not going to be faster than that. So every every adult in the country will still be vaccinated by July. That's the that was something that the government was very keen to get across. And also no vaccine appointments that have already been um organized, none of them will be cancelled. There'll be a lot more second doses, just quite a few fewer first doses in the next month. One of the most interesting pieces of news this week is, of course, the uh, launch of the forthcoming by-election by in Hartlepool. Now, if you were a betting person, uh, you could have actually put some money on this because I have been privately speculating Hartlepool might encounter a by-election for a very long time. The MP, Mike Hill... Uh, is a notorious Corbynista who was uh, had the whip suspended 
in September 2019, had the whip restored in October 2019, as Corbyn's Labour Party claimed the sexual harassment complainant that had caused the initial suspension had been withdrawn. Well, it hadn't been withdrawn. It had been parked while the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner investigated. Uh, of course, the whip was returned so Corbyn's mate could stand in the 2019 election, but uh, the news finally came through that he is going to stand down. Uh, I got wind of this one uh, the night before. I think it was Monday night and it came out on the Tuesday morning that uh, he was going to resign. It seems he had a meeting with the chief whip, Nick Brown, that evening and was told he had to quit. Uh, this is, of course, amazing uh, territory for commentators because it is prime red wall seat. It fell from the massive majorities enjoyed by Peter Mandelson. It was one of those seats Labour HQ could just slot in a posh southerner and Labour would vote for any Labour candidate down to a 3,000 majority. And Richard Tice of the Brexit Party got, I believe, the highest Brexit Party vote share in the country in 2019, over 10,000 votes. So there is a huge potential here for the Tories to call an, uh, cause another electoral upset in the North East. The cephology of the seat is quite interesting. A lot of people speculating that half the Brexit Party vote will go back to Labour and half to the Tories. I'm not so sure. There was this hilarious suggestion in The Spectator, very mischievous, that the Tories should offer Richard Tice the candidature. Now, that would be quite <laughs> clever because, obviously, that would mean any personal uh, following that he has would go to them. But I think the Tories have someone lined up, haven't they? Well, it's not... Uh, being announced, the speculation it will be the 2019 candidate. But I think the key analysis is that for the Tories to win, they really have to pick a very, very local candidate. It can't be someone flown in. It should be a local businessman, someone respected in the community, which of course stands in great contrast uh, to the absolute farce going on in the Labour Party selection process. Tom, do you want to talk us through that? Yes, well, the Tories might not have officially sorted out their candidate selection yet. Labour are well and truly in the process of stitching it up. There was an extraordinary email that was leaked to us and we published on the website earlier this week that showed that the top people in the local party were trying to stitch up a selection list of one to present just one candidate for the local party to vote between and choose. What an, what an amazing feat of local democracy that would be. This, of course, is Paul Williams, who was a, briefly an MP between 2017 and 2019 for Stockton South. He lost his seat in 2019, but before he lost his seat, he was one of the main agitators for a second referendum. He piled in amendments to try and keep us in every jot and tittle of the European Union, especially the European Medicines Agency, which he spoke up on behalf of many, on many, many occasions. Well, look where that's got Europe over this vaccine rollout. This is a very curious choice. He's, a, he's an arch Blairite uh, member of ex-member of Parliament who was actually the Labour Party's candidate for police and crime commissioner in the area. And it looks like the Labour Party is now trying to swap him out after having campaigned to become police and crime commissioner for the best part of the last year. He is now going to be uh, slotted in if the Labour Party get their way to become the parachuted candidate in Hartlepool. However, 
Something else that this email that we got our hands on uh, made clear is that neither Paul nor the London Labour Party know the area at all. This memo talked about having to teach them the area, having to teach them what the people are like. Uh, this is an absolute parachuting in, which probably won't go down that well with a proud local town like Hartlepool. Uh, it's it's worth saying that if Paul Williams couldn't keep uh, Stockton South, he will be a disaster. Um, I'm sure viewers might not know this is my home stomping ground. I'm from this area. Stockton South contains the only private school in the area. It contains the most affluent part of the Tees Valley, a town called Yarm, where all the footballs and their wa- footballers and their wags live. It's a very affluent part. Hartlepool is the other end of the spectrum. And if he couldn't win in Stockton South, he is not going to win in Hartlepool, where it was a 70% leave vote. Uh, It will be a very funny uh, spectacle to watch if he is stitched up as the candidate. The Labour left seems to be going, go ahead, make our day. This guy is a loser. He's a Remainer. He's a Blairite centrist. And and they seem to share the same analysis as you do on that, that he's going to be the worst candidate that Labour could put forward. Well, of course, the Labour Party <laughs> I mean, just we've won got the to... headline on the night that Corbyn won the seat and Starmer lost it. That would play very nicely into their narrative. Well, let's look at the other options for the Labour Party, because the other two names being prominently floated were, of course, Laura Pidcock, formerly of North West Durham, and Helen Goodman, uh, formerly of Bishop Auckland. Both, I mean, Helen Goodman is as rabid a Remainer as uh, Paul Williams, and we don't need to go into why Laura Pidcock would be one of the best options for our perspective for the Labour Party to go with. Uh, But there is certainly not a limit to former Red Wall Labour MPs knocking around the North East. There was some parliamentary fireworks on Tuesday night as David Davis used parliamentary privilege, something that members of the Scottish Parliament are not privy to, to bring to light some bombshell whistleblower evidence in relation to the Nicola Sturgeon affair north of the border. Uh, This included supposed evidence to suggest not only was there uh, a concerted effort by Scottish parliamentary officials to encourage complaints against Alex Salmon, seemingly justifying his allegations that there was this conspiracy to hound him out of public life and potentially even into prison. And secondly, that Nicola Sturgeon's chief advisor uh, was aware of the allegations months before the date that both her and Sturgeon have thus far made clear. The new SNP chief whip wasn't having any of it and tried to shut David Davis down, a clip that went very well with our audience. Let's see that. A few weeks ago, I was passed some papers from an anonymous whistleblower. The information in those papers consisted of a download of text messages from the telephone of Sue Riddick, the Chief Operating Officer of the SNP. This download... Madam Deputy Speaker, obviously I appreciate the the points that the Right Honourable Gentleman is making. However, there are court orders in place around the identities of individuals involved in that case. And I, I do appreciate the points that the Honourable Gentleman is making. However, I would appreciate your guidance on how we can ensure that these court orders can in fact be adhered to in this place. Peter, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his very serious point of order. And I can assure him that I am listening very carefully 
to what the Right Honourable Gentleman is saying. And I think that the Right Honourable Gentleman, being a very experienced parliamentarian, uh, understands the side of the line on which he must stay as far as mentioning sensitive matters and matters uh, connected with courts, etc. Mr Davis. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. I have, I think, brought uh, whistleblower uh, views to the attention of this House on about a dozen occasions in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and in every single occasion I have protected the innocent people involved. Now, the download that... Uh, of course, the SNP is desperate to close down this issue and prevent the evidence going out. Now, we didn't report it at the time, but on March the 5th, we reported uh, Alex Salmon's evidence that was also on the Hollywood uh, parliamentary website. The Scottish Crown Office and the Lord uh, Advocate, I think it is, in the Cabinet, who is a member of Sturgeon's cab Cabinet, ordered that to be taken down. Hollywood uh, complied, meekly in my view, but for some reason the executive is, has power over the Parliament, the reverse of what it is in most constitutions, I think. Uh, the Spectator, like us, had um, put up the same evidence and written stories about it. Now, it's quite complicated, so I suggest you go to the website and have a look at the stories. Anyway, today the Spectator has a leader about how it's standing up for press freedom and is going to refuse to take down the evidence and the stories that is published on the subject. We are taking the same view. Now, Fraser Nelson and Andrew Neil may want to visit Scotland and uh, may have more problems with uh, threats in that jurisdiction. But I can tell you, I can quite easily cope without going to Scotland. And good luck extraditing me if you want us to take that down, because it ain't going to happen. So we'll see where that goes, whether we'll be able to stand up to the uh, Scottish legal system or they'll manage to censor the stories. It's worth having a look at the stories. It's a broad issue, not just the freedom of press, but... You know, is Alex Salmon going to get justice in the Scottish legal system? It does remind me of Liam Fox's point of order that he made in the House of Commons all those weeks ago, where he says that the basic tenets of democracy, of having a separate, independent judiciary, free from political control, has crumbled in Scotland. It's behaving like a banana republic. The SNP have stuffed the Crown Office, which is supposed to be independent and judicial. It is stuffed with SNP apparatchiks, and they're doing the First Minister's bidding. It's a travesty for justice in Scotland. There are other issues, aren't there, as well? There's... Um... Well, why don't you tell us about the Patrick Grady uh, stuff, Tom? Well, this, of course, is a separate case. There's not just Alex Salmond who's been um, accused of sexual assault up in Scotland, but the former chief whip down in Westminster of the SNP, Patrick Grady, had um, first private uh, complaints made against him three years ago, and those complaints went public this year. Now, the allegation, of course, is that what happened to those complaints over the intervening three years? Where did they go? Why didn't the SNP investigate them fully? And there are lots of questions that have now been raised over who knew and when, and why was this brushed under the carpet? Of course, All this of this is playing out very badly for, for the uh, SNP. And the latest polling had one poll had them... I think this is an outlier, 14 points behind on the in-out referendum question. It's, uh, it's, it's, 
it's a problem that is starting to cut through in the in the Westminster media, but is also impacting her at home. The trend of the polls is absolutely clear. We have passed peak SNP. A few months ago, you'd see the SNP regularly above 50% in the polls, and now they're scraping around in the 40s. And of course, that yes, no, remain, leave, in, out, however you want to phrase it, question, there is no poll that puts Scottish separatism above British unionism now. The scenes over the weekend on Clapham Common, where people gathered to hold a vigil for Sarah Everard, the murdered 33-year-old in London, were quite harrowing when the police started arresting those who turned up to the vigil. This outraged people across the political spectrum. You couldn't find a single uh, politician tweeting in favour of the idea that the police should go out and arrest people um, for simply laying flowers or holding a candle at the Clapham grandstand. Now, the problem is that most of those MPs who were so critical of the police from being quite heavy-handed and and probably outrageously heavy-handed at that vigil, those same MPs had voted in law after law that told the police to arrest people in such a situation. There was one MP who has been consistent on this issue over the course of the last 12 months, and that is, of course, Charles Walker. He spoke up many months ago when there was a woman being arrested outside Parliament for being part of an anti-lockdown protest. An elderly woman bundled in to the back of a police van. He witnessed that, scarpered into the House of Commons and said, this is a disgrace, we need to sort this out, why do we keep voting through this law? No one particularly cared. Now suddenly his words ring a little heavier, given that every MP is saying that this sort of protest, this sort of even vigil, should not be criminalised. Let's have a look at what Charles Walker had to say this week. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. Madam Deputy Speaker, this House criminalised the freedom of protest. This House, us. Not Dame Cressida, not the Metropolitan Police... We did. We criminalised the freedom to protest collectively. We are up to our eyeballs in this. Does the Home Secretary, my right honourable friend, agree with me that now is the time to decriminalise freedom of protest? Not tomorrow, not next week, but this afternoon, this evening. Let's get people back on the streets. Let's allow people to get things off their chest again. Protest is a safety valve. So it was a surprise to see lockdown fan Zara Sultana, who had voted through all the laws that criminalised protest, speaking loudly at a protest uh, amongst a throng of people, um, many of whom were not wearing masks. Not that that uh, matters in terms of what the law says. There she was speaking through a megaphone to a throng of people in the exact situation that she had voted to make illegal. I mean, if she wanted to be consistent, she should call for her own arrest. Let's have a look. To collectively grieve, police should not have been violent. And now Christina Dick is doubling down. Well, to Christina Dick, I say, you need to resign.
illegal protest on Parliament Square. I'm with you in Parliament. I'm with you in the streets. And we're going to win. Tom, I, I don't understand. As far as I know, you're with Zara Sultana, or current Zara Sultana, who thinks everything should be locked down hard and, and uh, really restricted. I don't really believe that there's much risk when you're outside. Do you? I think you've got the wrong end of the stick and you should read my Telegraph article on this all over again. The whole point of what I was suggesting about external, about travel restrictions, is that we can open up internally, which is what I've been agitating for for a long time. Um, I, think it's, I think it's balmy that we have banned the right to protest. I think it's balmy the heavy-handed policing. I think a lot of the restrictions that there are currently in law that are restricting things that, let's face it, if you walk through London, everyone's doing anyway. People sitting in groups outside, all this sort of stuff, people sitting on benches. I've been walking down the South Bank a few times in the last few weeks and seen actually police handing out fines and arresting people who thought they were obeying the law. These people could have met others indoors and probably not been arrested or fined by the police. So they went and sat in the freezing cold with friends of theirs thinking that they were doing the right thing and got £200 fines because of it. I think it's. I think a lot of this stuff is heavy-handed and outrageous. My suggestion is that we have stricter border measures so that we can open up internally. Right, so you don't you agree with Zara Sultana that we should go and protest now? I think that the right to protest should be enshrined in law. Okay. Not Just making that clear. <laughs> this week. All right. Well, there's no argument then, is there? There's no argument at all. However, there is a big argument over the crime bill that went through Parliament this week. And Labour after for a long time saying they supported this bill and this is a wide-ranging bill that covers everything from increasing sentences for child murderers to also increasing sentences for people who desecrate war memorials and statues um this is a wide-ranging bill but suddenly uh, because it has elements that support the police and also um a very controversial element over um cracking down on nuisance protests and uh, the question over who gets to define nuisance is a, is a very ambiguous one um, Labour have suddenly switched their support after the weekend from supporting the bill, from even saying the bill doesn't go far enough, to now opposing it outright. And this led to a quite humorous contribution from one of our favourite MPs on this website, uh, the MP for Ashfield. Let's have a look at what he had to say. Post-Covid, people want to return to safe streets and safer neighbourhoods. This bill does that. This bill ensures that the victims of crime are put first. And I find it strange that Labour are talking about tougher sentences for crimes against women. Yet in December, they were trying to stop us deporting foreign rapists. One Labour MP said we should not deport these criminals in December as it was too close to Christmas. I disagree. I thought it was a great Christmas present. Labour say that this bill uh, will remove the right to protest. Rubbish. This bill will protect peaceful protests from being hijacked by trouble-causing agitators. Labour's idea of peaceful protests are the ones we saw in Whitehall last year, where police were attacked, our flag was burned and memorials damaged, whilst their own MPs looked on and said nothing. That was disgraceful. We have a Home Secretary who is brave enough to tackle the issue of illegal camps. These camps have made the lives of Ashfield residents a misery. When these camps are set up, crime rises... Locals feel intimidated and the council is left with a massive clean-up bill. This bill puts a stop to this nonsense. Police in Ashfield are doing a great job. 
but I know they are frustrated by short sentences and weak bail conditions. This bill will give our police extra powers and the extra confidence they need. I'm confused that the Shadow Home Secretary has said tonight that he agrees with lots of things in the bill, but yet he will vote against it, proving once again Labour are on the side of criminals. Now then, before lockdown, residents would often see me sat in the front of a police car going out on patrol and supporting our police, which is in sharp contrast, Mr Deputy Speaker, to some Labour politicians who have been seen in the back of police cars on the way to the station. It comes as no surprise that Labour will not support this bill after reading this week that there are 14 leading Labour politicians that have been arrested, imprisoned or been under investigation in the past six months. There is no wonder we need more prisons. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Labour have had an insane week when it comes to this bill. Um, We counted no fewer than three U-turns. First of all, as Tom said, they were saying it doesn't go far enough, and then by Monday they were saying it goes too far. We also pointed out that the Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Tom Simmons, had called for statues to be protected in law, and then started attacking the bill for focusing on protecting statues. Then there was the Shadow Justice Secretary, David Lammy, uh, who was joining in with calls from Labour to say they supported the parts of the bill that hand out tougher sentences to terrorists. But we got our hands on a letter from David Lammy to the Secretary uh, of State for Justice Buckland, saying that he would oppose such increases in sentences because they would target ethnic minorities disproportionately. That was by Tuesday. And then by Wednesday, uh, we came out with the exclusive uh, highlighting that in 2012, Emily Thornbury, who is of course now Sakir's Shadow Trade Secretary, had attacked him when he was Director of Public Prosecutions for his decision to weaken rape prosecution guidelines. This was a Labour-branded press release that is still out on the internet uh, that says she demanded an urgent rethink of Sakia's decisions to weaken the guidelines that specialist barristers must deal with every stage of a rape prosecution. This was absurd politicking to begin with and then made even more embarrassing and undermined their stance by Wednesday. It was a ridiculous week for the Labour Party. I think Mm. it's fair to say that uh, the provision Mm. in the crime bill to ban protests that that are nuisance protests should worry people on all sides of the political spectrum. Now, I, I think it's pretty clear that, that if Extinction Rebellion are blocking a bridge by a hospital, that should be illegal. But that, that should be illegal because blocking bridges is illegal, not because it's a protest. The idea that you could have a Home Secretary or even, dare I say it, a Supreme Court judge say that something is a nuisance and therefore it can't happen is very worrying because, do you know what? It won't always be Pretty Patel as Home Secretary. Uh, mm. At some point there'll be someone who you really dislike as Home Secretary and, and any arbitrary power they have to say that's a nuisance and must stop is a very worrying power to have indeed. Mm. I mean, that's a point that Theresa May made, you know, she, Pretty Patel might think she's a very reasonable Home Secretary to decide what's a nuisance and what isn't, but at some point, you know, Diane Abbott was nearly shadow, was nearly the Home Secretary of this country. 
And that is how the government should make law. If it's going to give the government powers, it has to think, will, will I be comfortable with these powers being exercised by the opposition? And I think the answer is definitely not. So how would you amend the well, legislation uh, think, to cope with Tom, people who set out to, to deliberately uh, disrupt a, uh, a city? I mean, we had that well, Tom, complete and total disruption of London. It, that's the thing. I think it has to be dealt with in specifics. There have to be specific examples. It can't just be a nebulous, the Home Secretary can decide whether a protest is a nuisance. Yes, you can specify that if a protest is blocking ambulances getting to St Thomas's Hospital, if a protest is stopping Cambridge Council from sitting in plenary and doing their democratic duty because they've taken over the chamber, if a protest is stopping the rollout of print editions of the Telegraph and other newspapers, as we saw with Extinction Rebellion last year, those things can be defined, but it can't be vague in legislation. I mean, that that seems like a massive issue with this legislation. We didn't come out gunning for it. We just pointed out the many, many uh, ridiculous positions Labour had taken in regard to the uh, in regards to the bill throughout the week. Right, and I think the crucial thing here is that no one opposes the right of people to assemble. No one should oppose the right of people to assemble. What people should oppose, and what I particularly oppose about Extinction Rebellion, is not that they were a group of people who gathered together to do sort of a a protest. It's that they were smashing windows and blocking bridges and digging up hundreds of year old turf in different parts of the country and, you know, causing criminal damage. Now, there's a reason that's called criminal damage, because it's already criminal. You don't need um, extra, you don't need to say it's a nuisance if they're doing something like smashing a window or blocking a bridge. Those are already illegal in law. And perhaps there need to be better ways for the police to be able to stop people doing things that are already illegal. But I don't see why you need to now suddenly say that any nuisance protest uh, is a special level of, uh, of illegality. This week we got a first look at Downing Street's new broadcast studio in number nine Downing Street, which is a former courtroom and has now been converted uh, into a uh, fit-for-TV studio. Robot cameras, uh, lighting systems, and cheap, uncomfortable chairs for the hacks that are going to be there. A lot of comment about how when they put the Downing Street, or sorry, rather they put the, the national coat of arms on the podium... You can't read Downing Street on the uh, lettering, and it reads Dow Reet. Uh, these are obviously small little hiccups. I'm looking forward to it because I'm getting a pass when Tom goes, finally. And I'll be going there to ask Allegra Stratton difficult questions, hopefully. Um, some, some quibbles about the cost of it. You know, when you get um, builders into a, grey, uh, a listed building, it's always difficult. Uh, and 2.7 million is a no surprise to me. It does seem like an extraordinary one... amount of money, though, for, for what I think I could have done a much better job. All they've done is put up some felt, as far as I can see. It, it is, Tom, it I've witnessed look... you trying to put up a green screen. I don't think you could do a good job. <laughs> I did have one MP suggest that most of the money went on trapdoors and shark tanks for the lobby. 
Uh, but we'll have to see if that plays out when uh, things go to broadcast. Talking of big broadcast announcements, on Thursday there were big reforms set out by Tim Davey of the BBC, uh, not least uh, probably of, of most interest for, for our readers was the news that the Today programme uh, will have 100 episodes a year uh, made broadcast from outside of London and both Newsnight and the PM show are also going to be turning their faces away from London and this is part of a big uh, relocation you've got bits going up to Leeds and Glasgow and it's already as you can imagine massively annoying uh, many BBC employees who logically have made and built their lives in London uh, but I particularly enjoyed the uh, a couple of, of parts of the story the first one was that when uh, this is the British Broadcasting Corporation and uh, when staff tried to access the broadcast it completely collapsed uh, which is not doesn't bode well and apparently after Tim Davey had finished announcing a, a few hundred job losses and a massive relocation program uh, he then mitigated the bad news by allowing employees to view the latest trailer for the new series of Line of Duty so don't say the BBC doesn't treat its employees or soon to be ex-employees well I'm sceptical that this is going to save the BBC money. I mean, I know it's not directly intended to do that, but I, I can't see Emily Maitlis getting first-class tickets up to Leeds or Birmingham no. or Manchester or wherever it's going to be. I, I, as, I'm particularly, as particularly helpful. I'm particularly interested in, in his claims that whilst there'll be 700 million of new BBC spending out of London, that will apparently reap economic benefits to the new areas of 850 million. Um, I don't see the BBC's moves generating 150 million of new economic activity unless, I don't know, the prep habits of employees are carried up and Leeds sees a particular boom. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a Harvey Nichols in Leeds, right? So they'll be going there for the start. <laughs> well, well, isn't, isn't this the point? Isn't this the point? that the, the BBC is saying we're going to get out of London and the places they choose to go are Leeds and Manchester to remain voting, metropolitan, large conglomerations of people, cities. I mean, the, the whole point of this is, is the BBC have a metropolitan attitude. Now, that doesn't mean it's a London attitude. That's the same attitude that people have in, in Manchester and in Leeds and in many of the other large cities in this country that all vote the same way. I mean, they have Tom, people that all think the same so way. I am so with you on this. Let's send them to the Outer Hebrides. <laughs> well it's the same it's the same argument isn't it that was being deployed when the treasury was having their row about where they should move the new campus to because Leeds and Manchester were on the cards and ultimately they went with Darlington because it has that different outlook that represents more rural more conservative areas of the country Manchester um, is just London with a different accent and for that reason, they irritate me greatly. It is when the do most the suburbs BBC thing get in the world in, by the to way. say... <laughs> when do the suburbs I mean, get a look in? Why, when do bourgeois suburban values get a chance to influence the <laughs> national agenda? Well, you may be in luck because the BBC Concert Orchestra, uh, the new home for them has not been declared. They're just going to be outside the M25. So, I don't know, Watford maybe. Yeah. 
For, for, for the BBC, that's what North means, isn't it? Outside the M25, no matter where it is in the country, they all think the same, don't they? Everyone outside the M25 think exactly the same. They all vote the same. I mean, it's ridiculous. The idea that the voting, the, the voting patterns of London are probably more like the voting patterns of Manchester and Leeds than anywhere else in the country. They've just picked smaller London to move to. It's ridiculous. Whilst we're BBC bashing, can we just bring up Naga Munchetti's uh, behaviour this morning when she was on uh, interviewing Jenrick and he was in his office with the, the Union Jack behind him and a picture of the Queen and they ended up deriding him for the, it being too small and you knew exactly what they were saying transparently and then afterwards when there's a bit of a kickback she goes on Twitter and starts favouriting and liking uh, uh, people who talk about flag shaggers and whatnot. I mean, she's very, very cocky. She believes that the rules on impartiality, which were specifically changed to cope with social media and, to, and warned presenters not to be um, retweeting or favouring uh, controversial uh, material on Twitter. She's just gone and done it. And that's because she thinks she's untouchable. And the most hurting thing about this is that Nicola Sturgeon, Emmanuel Macron, um, Ursula von der Leyen, they, every time they give a speech, they're surrounded by their national symbols, by their flags. And of course, the BBC thinks that fo- that's fine. But as soon as a British minister does that, then that's terrible and nationalistic and wrong. I, 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 there are a lot of sort of FBPers and Remainers and... Uh, Labour people who are saying, why why has there been this sudden increase in flag usage in the background of ministerial interviews? Um, I think it's because we're in a pandemic and ministerial interviews have started happening from the offices where the flags have always been. You're only just seeing them. Have you, have you seen this point. amazing really phenomenon? Don't believe have it for one this... second. <laughs> Have you seen this phenomenon on Twitter where it's sort of all these very angry people with little EU flags in their Twitter names who are saying, how dare you put oh, flags amazing, up? How, yeah. how nationalistic is that? And these are the people that have about 16 EU flags in their, in their Twitter name and in their mm. bio. It's ridiculous. Mm. The in their European Union berries, they tweet this anger. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever been to a pro-EU rally, it, it is the most, it is the closest thing you can get in the UK to a Trump rally. The number of flags, of national symbols, um, the, the sort of solidarity of, I, I, I don't know, patriotic feeling towards um, the country that they think should absorb this country is, is the most nationalistic and jingoistic thing I think we've got here. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode of Guido Talks. Remember, we are available on all of your favourite podcast platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and of course, as a video podcast on YouTube. Remember to subscribe wherever wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, hit that little notification bell and get a notification reminder every Friday when the podcast comes out. That's it for us. Uh, See you again next week. Thank you for watching.